This is episode nine of the Futures Intelligent Leadership Flowcast with guests Edward Tenner and Peter Bishop. Welcome to the Futures Intelligent Leadership Flowcast. This is your host, Tyler Mongan. I am the president of Haku Global. This is a space for globally minded experts to dialogue about the future of leadership with a focus on the key question, how can leadership be more intelligent about futures? From this conversation, innovative wisdom, practical tools, and actionable insights emerge to help future-ready leaders thrive in an uncertain, complex, and exponentially changing world. In this episode, I'm joined by Peter Bishop and Edward Tenner. Dr. Peter Bishop is the executive director of Teach the Future, an initiative to encourage and support educators to introduce futures thinking into their classes and schools at all levels. He is a retired associate professor of strategic foresight and former director of the Graduate Program in Foresight at the University of Houston. Dr. Bishop specializes in techniques for long-term forecasting and planning, and he has published two books on this subject, Thinking About the Future in 2007 and Teaching About the Future in 2012. Edward Tenner is a distinguished scholar at Smithsonian Institute and associate professor at Princeton. He is the author of several books, including Our Own Devices, The Past and Future of Body Technology, and The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do, which was released in 2018. He's a writer, speaker, and consultant for newspapers, magazines, colleges and universities, research-oriented corporations, philanthropies, and professional associations. After re-listening to this episode, I'm reminded of a series of books I loved reading as a child called Choose Your Own Adventure. Each book followed a unique storyline, and the reader was given the unique opportunity to choose which path a character should take at certain points in the story. Once they made the choice, the reader would turn the page to reflect that choice and continue the story. This model of storyline development was fascinating to me as a child because it allowed me some control over the direction of the story. It also helped me realize that the past, present, and future were not part of a single trajectory. Rather, they were part of multiple trajectories into the future. I could go back and read a Choose Your Own Adventure book several times, and each time the story would be similar, but very different. One point that Peter makes in the dialogue is that 20th century mindsets about the future as part of a single timeline are not accurate, and they're no longer useful in the current climate of rapid change. The future has many paths, and the future is always uncertain. As Edward points out, futurism is a toolkit for flexibility that allows us to envision and prepare for possibilities on top of possibilities that the future presents. If you're interested in exploring the role of history in the future, how to use history for the future, restoring the uncertainty of the past to realize that history was a series of choices within a background of uncertainty just like today, how a feeling of the future drove Jeff Bezos to take the risk to create Amazon.com, why the information that is more difficult to access is being neglected and how that is influencing the future, why the current mindsets of education is limiting the future, the differences between transmitting knowledge and developing skills, the curse of knowledge, and why we need more uncertainty in leadership, then this episode is for you. Let's listen. So welcome, Peter and Edward. Thank you for joining me today on this episode. And as always, I want to start with this key question of what does it mean for leadership to be intelligent or smart about futures given uncertainty, complexity, and exponential change? 
and love for you both to answer that from your perspectives. And I'll start with Peter. Thanks, Tyler, for having us uh, on the program. It's a great question. Uh, I'm an educator, so let me and let me back up and uh, talk about learning and how we learn about the future. Uh, the future has been around in civilization and, and a, a kind of our concept space uh, for about 200 years, since about the Enlightenment, 250. And through the 20th century, we developed tools for forecasting the future and for influencing it, better known as planning, things like that. Uh, those tools were fine because, frankly, that was before the rapid increase in change and the, th and the influences that you just mentioned, uncertainty, complexity, and change. So we're still, unfortunately, in school picking up those particular mindsets. Uh, in science class, for instance, uh, the future is predictable. Uh, in history, it seemed to be inevitable, one thing right after the other, all, all with causes and effects. Uh, we also studied statistics, and of course, in that case, it was maybe random. So we're confused about the future, but we come away with it with some 20th century notions, which were not wrong but they're not particularly adapted to the amount of change and the frequency of disruptions that we're dealing with today. Mm. So my message would be leaders need to uh, basically uh, abandon those ideas, uh, the search for certainty, the search for truth, and begin to realize that the future is not single but multiple, and that one does plans, one can't just uh, basically set a goal set all the steps between here and the goal, and go charge ahead step by step by step. Uh, we can recount many of the disasters even, and certainly inappropriate actions that were taken using those kind of concepts. Hmm. So we have basically uh, developed another way of dealing with the future, which we call foresight or strategic foresight, which is uh, takes uncertainty and complexity and disruption as an inevitable and inherent part of the process of change which we can't ignore and sweep under the table. So that's mm. that would be my short message to leaders. Mm. Thank you, Peter. Um, Edward, from your perspective, how do you answer the question? I was uh, educated as a historian originally, and I, uh, I do a, a kind of a multidisciplinary thing now. Some people would say I'm, uh, I'm not really part of any profession, but that might <laughs> give me a different point of view. Uh, and I've been interested in futurism for years. I uh, wrote a series of uh, articles for the Britannica yearbooks of science and the future in the late 90s. And little did the Britannica people know that thanks to science, uh, the Britannica yearbooks would have no future. And uh, I also was uh, part in, uh, in tw uh, 2002 of a future scenario planning workshop of the Library of Congress regarding born digital information that is uh, new material on the web that never appears in print and how do you keep that across generations and at the time Google had not gone public and it didn't really have a clear uh, business plan uh, so somebody proposed this was a, a like a brainstorming meeting somebody proposed that the government would have to take over google and now the opposite seems to be much more likely mm. so my what i've learned from all that is that um as, as first of all peter is right that that people who, who think they have a clear path to the future are likely to be surprised the way that 
professional futures consultants deal with that is to say, yes, right, we can't predict, but our profession is is establishing some uh, scenarios and they might have a half dozen scenarios and then how would you uh, be prepared in the case of each scenario. So for example, a possible global pandemic is something that really was foreseeable. It was not something uh, purely hypothetical. So people who had been familiar with how these had occurred, I, by the way, began my uh, science career such as it is as an assistant to William H. McNeil with his groundbreaking book, Plagues and Peoples on the Influence of Disease in History. So I've been mm-hmm. concerned with this for a long time. So somebody who, who is uh, familiar with scenario planning would at least know from historical precedents and from the latest studies in, in epidemiology what the best strategies would be uh, for dealing with this and how the, the future events like this might be uh, if not prevented, at least mitigated and, and retarded. So I see real futurism as a as a toolkit for flexibility uh, based on history in part and also based on current science. It, it's really a matter of being able to envision many possibilities and also many unexpected possibilities growing out of those possibilities. And we have seen so many of those in, in political life those that really had rarely been proposed by futurists. So this should remind us uh, to be very modest, but at the same time uh, to remember that all of the grand planning exercises of the past have run into one problem or another. That was a a huge issue for the former Soviet Union. In fact, in the in the 1980s, and like in 1988, a historian published a book called A Short History of the Future. And the premise of the book really was that the Soviet-American rivalry would continue well into the 21st century. So this was just before the wall fell, and this was a very respected historian. So this just shows how even uh, really trained and sophisticated people can't really always make the right assumptions. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting points from both of you. Thanks, Peter and Edward. I'm curious, Peter, from your perspective, you know, as we're talking about this um, kind of idea of the role of the history in the future, what are your thoughts on that? Like how, how, what role does history play now? Uh, more, more than ever, I would think. Um, I mean, we have that famous phrase, those who don't know history are bound to repeat it. And then we uh, study all this history in school, and then they go right ahead and repeat all the mistakes we did before. So uh, that's a nice phrase. Nobody really believes it. Nobody really follows it <laughs> up. Uh, in uh, my view of history is that we are part of a three-act play. Uh, hmm. The first act is the past. The second act is the present. And again, as an educator, unfortunately, they stop there. You hmm. know. So the one thing I realized. I, 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 um, read a book about the uh, American revolutionaries and the author's point in the foreword was that the people who were engaged in that activity didn't know their story. Mm. They didn't know the end of their story. We don't know the end of our story, but we treat history as though it's a one complete story. Do this, Mm. it happened, and these are the consequences. And and uh, maybe uh, Edward knows a a now popular historian, Jill Lepore, who writes for the New Yorker, and on a podcast, she just had a throwaway line. It was not what the podcast was about, but she said, 
the purpose of the professional historian is to is to re resurrect or restore the uncertainties of the past mm. and not to treat it as a single line of events one after the other after the other like a, like a string of pearls but as a branching structure that could have gone many different ways and there's a small uh, cottage industry called alternative histories but even the mindset is that what what those folks were dealing with was in no way predetermined and that gives us a better view of the past as a, as a series of set of decisions made in the conditions of uncertainty. Hmm. They turned out well in some cases, not so well in other cases, but we should give ourselves comfort that, uh, that it's always been that way, that we're not different because we now know the end of the stories of all those folks in the past because we don't know our own story. Well, they didn't know their own story either. So I hmm. wish we were teaching history more as a sense of, the, of being in that moment when they knew their past and maybe something about their present, but they had no idea about the future and yet they had to act and, and discuss nonetheless. So is it the idea that we, we tend to forget that history has so much uncertainty? We don't, we don't forget it. We were never taught, we were never introduced to it. I mean, let's think about the history class. It's a textbook. <laughs> what, what the famous phrase is, history is just one damn thing after another. No, it's a lot more than that. And yet we do not, as Lepore said, we do not rescue the uncertainties of the past and present them in history. So I'm talking about a huge revolution. I mean, Edward's the historian here. <laughs> he can comment on this. But it's a revolution in how we teach history. Now, it's a series of things that happen, but as a series of events, of, of eras and periods of time in which uncertainty is inherent and that there's a branching structure, just like we do in, in future studies, where we have multiple scenarios, it's a branching structure. It's not a river, it's a river delta, where there are all these branches going out. I wish we were to teach the past that way. You have any follow-up on that, Edward? Well, the academic historians that I know are, are really, uh, like Jill Lepore, are very much aware of paths not taken. There is a famous quote from uh, one of them, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, uh, that uh, at, at, at one point uh, in the revolutions of 1848, Germany reached its turning point and failed to turn. And um, <laughs> that sense is, is present in, in a lot of other writings, roads not taken. What if, what if Reconstruction, for example, had been pursued more, more vigorously? We would not have many of the problems that we have today. And yet at the time, there were so many forces that were impelling, as it seemed, impelling uh, white politicians to, uh, to, to let go and to, to let uh, the, uh, the, essentially the former slaveholders resume uh, their, uh, their, their dominance. So um, it, it, there's, a, there's also a, one of my favorite quotes from the philosopher Kierkegaard, uh, life is lived forward and understood backward. And, and I think that is a, as good a summary of the human condition and of history mm -hmm. as I can think of. But there's another factor too. Um, uh, Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, was a, a hotshot hedge fund executive who was in line to be the successor of one of the most successful quantitative funds, D.E. Shaw. And um, he had this idea for launching a, uh, uh, an, uh, a, a kind of universal uh, online store, beginning with books. And he talked about it with his boss, who was a, is a brilliant um, 
mathematician, computer scientist, uh, founder of the company. And the boss was really skeptical about it. And he said, why, you know, why risk everything for that? You've got a really great position and a great future here. And Bezos did some calculations and he believed that strictly rationally looking into the future, uh, his boss was right, but he still went ahead and risked uh, everything he had and a lot of his family's wealth uh, in launching Amazon. And he later explained it in the following way. He called it his regret minimization framework. He, what he said was that if he lived to be 80 and he was a billionaire hedge fund manager, he would still always wonder uh, what whether he shouldn't have started something like Amazon. Maybe somebody else would have started something like that. So he went ahead and he took a, um, he took a, a deliberately, quote unquote, irrational decision about the future because of his own projection of how he would feel in the future. And I, I've always thought of that as an extremely sophisticated, whatever you think about Amazon, an extremely sophisticated way of thinking about the future. I, Edward, I agree with you that professional historians know these uncertainties really well, but my target audience are students in school. And unfortunately, my, my view, my own history class is a way long time ago. And, and anyone's today, I don't think they're being treated to that in the main. Yes, uh, teachers are under a lot of pressure to mm -hmm. include so many things in the curriculum, to be to be patriotic, but also to recognize uh, historically oppressed groups. And they're, they're under pressure, especially in history. They're under pressure from so many people. There are so many things they have to talk about. There are so many uh, sensitive points that, that I can see how, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, nuance that they might have wanted to introduce gets lost. And I think that's a pity. And I would hope that that teachers would have more contact with research scholars and would be more free to mm. inject these uh, possibilities. I, I agree with you completely. But I'd like to address this to Peter and, and you know, how is it that the things we're teaching today, how are they, how are they shaping the future or how are the things that we're not teaching today shaping the future? Well, most people expect the future to be for all intents and purposes like the past because that's what they study in school. Mm. They're not really given opportunity to do scenarios, number one. They, well, they don't even mention the future because teachers are confused because they what they want to do in most subjects, and I agree with this, Edward, more contact with professional historians would be marvelous, but I don't think the mindset is, is even there to absorb that information and put it in a particular way. The educa public education, in my estimation, over the last 150 to 200 years, has basically considered itself the transmission device to take the traditions and the knowledges of the past and inculcate them into the current, into the present generation. So it's a mm. transmission process. Mm. It, there's very little room for creativity, for innovation, for thinking outside the box, to use all the latest buzzwords. Uh, and so they're basically sharing a set of facts out of textbooks that, uh, that they learned and that they learned in their teacher training and that they go ahead and do. Now that's an exaggeration. There's some marvelous teachers out there. My wife and daughter are both teachers and I have great respect for the profession. But most of, and because of the pressures, most of it is getting across information, which, which we all both know and all know that is readily available in their hand on their smartphone. And, and what they don't know how to do is to use that information they, they mm. figure it out because that's what's required to be an adult. But while they're in school, 
there's not that kind of practice of those skills, not just what historical facts are, but how do you use history for making decisions or convincing someone or you know, even making decisions about your own life? How do you use the scientific knowledge that you have, the mathematical knowledge you have? Um, that's, uh, that's just not there because that's a skill rather than that's a knowledge. And we're still transmitting knowledge as a pipeline. And that to mm. me is one of the fundamental assumptions I think that's, that's inappropriate. It's not wrong again, knowledge is great, but uh, it's not necessary in this century. Mm. How do you respond to that, Edward? Because I think it seems, uh, it seems aligned with your book. Yes, I mentioned in the efficiency paradox that, um, that first of all, um, as, as, uh, as you and Peter were, were saying, that, that information is lost. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily lost, but information that is, that is more difficult to access is neglected. And I can see this even even at in in a uh, an elite place like Princeton, I'm in the Princeton Library right now, and it used to be that when I had books charged out, uh, they a number of them would always be recalled. But I think now there is a tendency for uh, for students to do as much as possible with with all of the incredible material that's online. And because there's so much online, uh, there's a, um, people, schedules are pressed. And so there, there, there's a tendency to neglect what's uh, available only in print or in storage. And one of the things that I do as a writer is to search that out, because if you want to say something different, if you want to introduce a a, some kind of new idea. Very often there are gems there. So I, if I were teaching, I would encourage students to do that. But there's another thing too, and that is that um, that the uh, the uh, uh, that students do not really learn sophisticated search. They don't learn the limits of search engines. They don't learn the built-in. Uh, uh, defects of search engines. They, they, uh, as, as the social scientists of computing say, they naturalize it. So they think that the Google algorithm is some kind of totally neutral thing, but in fact, it is so complex, as I mentioned in in the book, that that even the people at Google don't fully understand how it works. And so naturally, they're accused of bias, and and there are all kinds of statements. Well, they favor. They favor conservatives. They favor Trumpists. They favor the left. Um, and the the main thing is that what they really favor is making as much revenue as possible. But they also favor, for example, geographically. If somebody is in one country, their results will be different from those in another country because they've learned that people in one location prefer uh, one kind of article and those in another prefer another. So my argument has been that schools should really uh, teach uh, expert computing, that, that teachers have to learn this. Uh, it's, it's no secret. A lot of these things are actually resources on Google's own, uh, own pages, and there are other search engines too. But the problem as I see it is that, first of all, there is the student assumption that this is all natural. And second, that these skills fall in between. A lot of uh, teachers and librarians and administrators, so there's nobody who has ownership 
of search skills. And because mm -hmm. it's in that that uh, no person's land, it, uh, it it does not get the attention it deserves. But that mm -hmm. fits with what I've been saying, Edward. That we 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 need to be placing more emphasis on skills in general, mm -hmm. media literacy skills, search skills. I mean, the real skills in school are reading, writing, and calculation. Reading and writing, uh, and maybe should be public speaking. It's a communication in general. Those are those are dealt with fairly well, in my estimation. But even calculation. When's the last time you factored a trinomial equation? Come on now. You know this is this is not. But now, do people know how to deal with a lot of a big, big data set? Do they have data literacy? Do they have media literacy? Do they have search literacy? Those are the skills. And in futures literacy is something that we should be putting into the curriculum much more severely, much more centrally than we are now. Uh, yes, I I was uh, a commentator at a uh, meeting of uh, mathematics teachers at the National Academy of Sciences over a decade ago. And it was interesting to get to know them. The meeting was about quantitative literacy, not so much about proving theorems or, or solving equations as about just what you're talking about, the um, reaching uh, intelligent quantitative uh, judgments in everyday life and in politics and so forth. And what I came away with was that there are really two, um, two motivators among mathematics teachers at the college level. Uh, there are some that really do believe that mathematics, including statistics, is a tool for this all-around numerical literacy that, that may be more important than a, a lot of the, the pure mathematics that might be later forgotten or not used. But there is a very substantial number of teachers who see what they're doing as recognizing, mentoring, nurturing uh, the great mathematicians of tomorrow. And they're very passionate about that. So the teaching profession itself can't really agree on what the agenda should be for mathematics. And unfortunately, Edward, I believe that the far and away, certainly professors at universities, uh, 80 to 90 percent are in the business of cloning themselves, being able to point to their students. My wife got her doctorate in educational leadership and her major professor uh, was disappointed that she wanted to go be a principal in schools. And, and, and basically a change, change the culture through leadership and, and, and change in that. And he wanted her to go to a big university so he could point to her and say, oh, you know, this was my student, blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah, I don't, frankly, I don't think professional mathematicians know how to teach math literacy. <laughs> I, I think they, they could learn it. They obviously know the mathematics. But have they ever really sat down to say what do we what does people real people regular people need to know and be able to do in the work world in their private lives in their communities that we can teach them and they can be better at that i don't think that enters into most mathematics classrooms right from k through 16. you're pointing to something that i also mention in the efficiency paradox which is uh, the so-called uh, curse of knowledge. And the phrase curse of knowledge is used by psychologists to refer to the fact that once somebody has become 
expert or proficient in something, it's very hard for them to imagine themselves back at the time when they were ignorant of it and learning it and what the missing steps are that you, you need to study it. So this is why uh, teaching is, is really such a, such a challenging thing that, that you, um, uh, you, you are uh, dealing with, with all kinds of assumptions, wrong assumptions that people are making, but you, you can't really make a list of them. It's, it's really something that you have to discover after trying a lot of things and, and finding out just which examples work best. And there, there are a, uh, a number of, of teachers, especially um, science professors in, in good small colleges. The, the, it's interesting how many scientists tend to encourage their kids to attend not the big universities, but the uh, liberal arts colleges. And the reason is that the professors in the liberal arts colleges don't have graduate students to perform their help them perform their experiments. So they, they have to get their assistance from undergraduates. So they give a lot more attention to undergraduates and undergraduates there get more of the same kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of teaching that graduate students elsewhere would get. So they, they very often are the ones who do best when they go on to the big graduate schools. So going back to, um, to, to Tyler's question, and in your field, how often does the uses of the past come up in a history class? And shouldn't leaders be adept at that skill by taking the past and understanding it, opening it up to alternative interpretations and things like that? I don't think very many people ever, I've had a conversation like this with a history department in a community college. Are you teaching your students how to use the information that they're learning out of the textbook rather than just knowing it and giving it back on tests and essays? Uh, we, we just have a completely different mission in education for this century and, and preparing leaders for this century than we did the last time. And I don't think we're seeing, well, I don't see much change in that, frankly. Well, I, I, I think you're right. But on, on the other hand, um, looking at it, from, I mean, I have been a visiting lecturer myself. Uh, it was quite some time ago. And I, I think the, the, um, the, the etiquette is that the students really don't like it when they are when they feel they are being exhorted to some kind of citizenship or 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 even if there's no partisan side to it so i think that the best teachers are, are those that that do raise these these questions implicitly that that these courses uh, do uh, do really bear on decisions about the, the, the future, but the way in which they're done, I think, is to is to uh, encourage uh, encourage the students, for example, when they write their papers, to to get into, for example, issues of what might have happened, what decisions were made that that could have gone in another way. So I, I think that as far at least as far as the professors that that I know I think they're they they generally do a pretty good job of that now I, I can't speak for history teachers everywhere just for the people that, that I've known and you could criticize them for other things but I think on that score uh, most of them are, are really very conscious of how history bears on contemporary issues it's just that they I think rightly are reluctant to make everything 
uh, uh, too explicit. Uh, there's there's even a phrase that historians use called presentism, and um, and and historians may be very concerned about the present, but if you're too, it's it's again a matter of style. If you're if you're if you're too up front about it, 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 it can be self-defeating. And, and mm -hmm. so I understand that point of view. Mm -hmm. So um, let me go back to this idea of, the, of leadership and this future's intelligence. How can, how can leaders develop the skill to uh, you know, use the future proper, I mean, use the past, sorry, use the past and use the history properly or to help them and support them in the future? Um, I think we have to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty. We come out of school being successful. Leaders usually were successful in school by having the right answer, mm -hmm. by having the right solution to the problem, whether it's a math problem or an engineering problem. And they're not taught what to do when there are multiple answers, whether about the future or about almost anything. Anything that particularly involves human beings, management, economics, um, it requires one to realize that there is no one right answer. And that comes as a shock to most people and they get very uncomfortable uh, when, they, when they don't know the right answer. So I wish leaders were, and many are, this is not a universal claim, but I wish they were less certain and I wish they were more open to alternative assumptions and alternative explanations. I, I agree with Edward, some teachers do do that, but I would rather have this multiple view of the future made explicit I mean, implicitly, yeah, it's nice, but make it explicit that, that you don't know. And what are you going to do now? And, and give them that. So I think leaders need to have that better attitude, putting the certainties aside, realizing that it's impossible and misleading and sometimes even harmful uh, to basically embrace the uncertainty and complexity. I, mean, I, I, I certainly agree with, that, with the, the, the sentiment. I think that one problem, though, is that people who are really... Uh, sophisticated about ambiguity often don't have a chance to become leaders. <laughs> it's, it's a career ending leadership. <laughs> yeah, leadership. It's it's really it's really a disadvantage. So leadership very often goes to people. The people are absolutely sure about everything. Who can who can just uh, don't you know, don't don't talk about the pluses and minuses and and help educate people on difficult choices but there there are people who know the answer and we 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 can certainly see ample evidence of this and that's a, and that to me is a cultural problem because we value certainty over uncertainty when you're in the discussion the person who says yes but what if and everybody else rolls their eyes and says let's get on with it it's not complicated well, at, it's a yeah, Edley Stevenson had that had that image at least, and and uh, you saw what happened to him. So, um, so uh, ever since then, there there uh, uh, the it's it really hasn't been a political advantage to be to be seen as um, as as really you know really uh, thoughtful in that way. Uh, one of my college classmates is Bill Bradley, and uh, it, it's really a shame that he. Uh, he didn't become president, but but I think he was also maybe uh, a little bit too cerebral about some things, and he he was really one of the you know best educated of the of the recent uh, uh, candidates. But I, I think the difference was that he was very rational about his chances against George Bush Sr. and and Bill Clinton was kind of irrational and and. You know, had nothing to lose or very little to lose, and 
and, uh, and went ahead. But it's not the leaders who have created the situation. Political leaders who are successful are talking to a, to a public who wants certainty, who wants the answer. And they argue about my answer is better than your answer when both answers probably have some validity. But you, so Adlai Stevenson, who was talking to a population that wanted certainty, was unsuccessful, and Bill Bradley unsuccessful. And those people who stomp the table and go to rallies and say, this is the answer, this is the truth, are successful because they're talking to people who are looking for that. And they shouldn't be. They should have learned in school that that doesn't exist. No, I agree with you, but I, I think that that it's it's very unlikely that that teachers even if they could get together and agree to do that uh would really as a group be able to uh to to uh, to change that um you know but i'm also hoping that that one of these days um some political figure will will come along who can who can make um uncertainty and scenario planning and and so forth uh, charismatic and and maybe we just haven't seen him or her yet i don't see any of those people on the uh, on the present horizon but who knows well it's a reciprocal relationship if schools prepared people for uncertainty in ordinary life then then people then leaders who have that trait would be more successful so it's neither one it's a, it's a cart and a horse it's neither one it's both a very, very interesting points. I think that's a, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up here. And what is, what's one word you would like to leave a future intelligent leader? If I start with you, Peter. Uh, well, only one word. Only one word. <laughs> I'm a college professor. Come on, one word is impossible. Um, humility. Humility. And you, Edward? Well, I have to go with two words: unintended consequences. Hmm. Well, if he got two words, don't I get two words? Humility in the face of uncertainty. That's four mm. words, but okay. Great. Well, thank you both for your time today. Um, I think that was very interesting and enlightening. Uh, There's a lot of good points, I think, brought up and really relevant and interesting for the future. Okay, Tyler. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Tyler. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today on the Flowcast. To get a summary of today's dialogue, find out more about today's guests, listen to previous episodes, or discover more about Haku Global's neuroscience-based Futures Intelligent Leadership programs or customized strategic foresight and innovation sprints, visit us at www.haku.global. At Haku Global, we believe it is time for more Futures Intelligent Leadership. The future is something we need to think more intelligently and feel more deeply about so we can collaborate to discover today's solutions for future problems. If you are in a leadership role and need support or training to scale futures intelligence across your organization, then contact us at Haku Global. This is your host, Tyler Mongan, and until next time, have a preferred and conscious future. Aloha.